Hello and welcome to this Close Readings Fusion episode of the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. I'm joined today by Irina Dumitrescu, a professor of medieval English studies at the University of Bonn, to talk about Ovid, Chaucer and what happens when men write women's stories. Close Readings is a multi-series podcast subscription from the LRB. In one of the series, Emily Wilson talks to me about a dozen ancient Greek and Roman poets and playwrights, from Homer and Sappho to Horace and Seneca. In another, Irina is in conversation with Mary Wellesley about eight centuries of medieval literature, from Beowulf to the Digby Mary Magdalene play. And in the third series, Mark Ford and Seamus Perry discuss long poems and short stories of the 19th and 20th centuries. But of course, none of those periods of literature exist in isolation from one another. And earlier this year, Mark and Mary met to talk about Thomas Hardy's medieval mind and the importance of the Middle Ages to the Victorian imagination. And today, Irina and I will be discussing Chaucer's classical mind and the role of the ancient Greek and Roman world in the medieval imagination. They're looking in particular at Chaucer and Ovid and two of their less well-known but no less interesting poetic works, Ovid's Heroides and Chaucer's Legend of Good Women. Hello, Irina, and thank you so much for talking to me today. Hello, Tom. How important was the classical world to Chaucer's worldview or to the world of his poems? It's quite important. He lives in a time when the ideal is certainly not to be original. An author builds his credibility, um, the interest on repeating old stories. It's it's a moment much like today in a funny sort of way when we're seeing a, a renaissance of classical and medieval stories being retold. In Chaucer's case, that's that's true to the extent that he will sometimes make up classical sources even when they don't exist. So so some he he deals with it quite playfully. Uh, so on the one hand, he's always you know he's citing he uh, his classical sources and so on, and yet what I, I think is also important to keep in mind is that he knows how unreliable the texts are. So although he will cite. Uh, Lucan and Virgil, for example, uh, Stadius as um, as authorities, uh, he doesn't actually think they are completely 100% reliable. We know this, for example, because in the House of Fame, he tells two different versions of Dido stories, one from Virgil and one from Ovid, right? And that is also a poem about how unstable the written past is. This He's living in a manuscript culture. He understands that there are different versions of, of each text, that some texts have come to him incompletely, that some texts must, must have been lost. Uh, so on the one hand, it has this ideological power, right? You, you retell classical stories and you put yourself in that genealogy of great authors, the way Dante also did with Virgil and Virgil did with Homer and so on, but with a twist, with an ironic twist that's based on an understanding that these are still ultimately just stories. They're texts, and there are all kinds of reasons to question them. And at the time, Latin was, in some sense, it was still a living language, that it was still spoken, it was used in church. Is that so, or is that, is it, to call it a living language, is that an exaggeration? But I mean, Chaucer would have, could read Latin. He could read Latin. Um, he would have learned uh, some Latin in school. We don't assume that every time he mentions a classical author, he's read that author in the original without any help. I mean, again, much like today, uh, he used translations, um, he used cribs, uh, sometimes he, he used commentaries. 
sometimes he'll quote a Latin author, and it may be from a florilegium, you know, a collection of proverbs and quotations. And that's a way a lot of people would have come across uh, the classics. So not unlike today, there are many ways of approaching the classics. And his way is often through through contemporary European sources. So when I say translations, I also mean French and Italian, which were languages he also read quite a bit in and, and knew very well. He did a translation of uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, but he referred to a French translation while doing it, right? So much like a modern scholar, he's using all of the languages um, at his at his disposal, and it's not always necessarily clear that he had a full knowledge of um, any given author. The author he probably knows best in Latin is Ovid, in fact. And that's an author whom he refers to repeatedly. He compares himself to Ovid in the Canterbury uh, Tales. One of the other characters comp- says that he's written just about as much as Ovid, if not if not more. Other authors also compare him to Ovid. So there's clearly a strong connection there, which is not surprising because Ovid was a school text in the Middle Ages. Ovid was read widely in school, despite often quite troubling or uh, erotic. That was suitable for school children, but he was... But, Not, he was, but yeah. yeah, but in the Middle Ages, it was different, right? They gave school children kind of interesting things to read. Um, so so this is an author that a lot of educated medieval readers, medieval male readers most likely, would, um, would know quite well. Yeah. And it's also the case that Ovid, certainly in terms of surviving text, is the most prolific Latin poet that we have. We, I mean, there's more Ovid than... Virgil and Catullus and others all put together and I suppose and then the, the Metamorphoses that sort of collection of of many tales collected in one large poem clearly has something in common with the with the Canterbury Tales that idea of the although there's you know there's only the one narrator but the, but the Heroides which were a relatively early work of Ovid's or the, the first 15 of the letters they're, they're mostly a series of imagined letters from mythological women to the men who have wronged them. So Ariadne to Theseus, Medea to Jason, Dido to Aeneas, and so on. And Ariadne, for example, she sends her letter from Naxos, the island where Theseus has abandoned her on his voyage back to Athens from Crete after he's slain the Minotaur with her help. And the, it begins, the words you are reading, Theseus, have been sent, this is in Harold Isbell's translation for Penguin Classics, have been sent from the shore where you deserted me. And so the tales that Chaucer tells in the legend of good women about about Ariadne and others are clearly influenced by Ovid, but they take a rather different form. I mean, it's quite an unusual poem in many ways, isn't it? Even even for Chaucer. It is. And, and maybe it's worth at this point just giving a, a brief overview of, of the poem so we know where we're at. Uh, first of all, it's a late poem. Um, he writes it after he's finished Troilus and Crusade, probably before he's finished uh, the Canterbury Tales, because he refers to it in the Canterbury Tales. But it's a it's a work that comes late in his career. It's often considered a failed poem. We'll talk about you know in a moment about why that is. It's one of his dream poems. So Chaucer wrote a number of dream poems: The House of Fame, I mentioned earlier, The Parliament of Fowls, um, The Book of the Duchess, and. In his dream poems, there's often, you know, there's always a, a character based on him. Whom scholars refer to him as Geoffrey, just to distinguish from the real-life author Chaucer. And Geoffrey is a sort of bumbling, foolish version of Chaucer. Unlucky in love, kind of adult, but usefully so. <laughs> usefully dumb, right? And the legend of good women starts with 
um, Jeffrey, first of all, talking about how much he loves books and books are always true and his, his faithfulness in books, which should already make anyone who knows Chaucer's work suspicious because that was not what Chaucer thought. And he goes out into the garden and he worships a daisy. Maybe this stood for a woman named Marguerite. Maybe it's a little, you know, it's definitely an allusion to 14th century courtly love poetry and love games that have to do with uh, with the daisy. This was sort of a, a, a French fashion. And he just actually doesn't worship a woman. He actually sits on the ground and looks at a flower for a long time, uh, moons over it in a creepy sort of way, and then goes and takes a nap. And in his nap, he has a dream in which he is again in the garden worshiping the daisy. But this time, the god of love, we have to imagine this resplendent, sun-like figure who comes up to him, wears a, a crown, a sun for a crown. His face glows so much that Chaucer, or rather Geoffrey, can barely look at him. He's wearing beautifully embroidered clothing with leaves and flowers on it. I mean, he's just resplendent. And he's angry. And he comes with a, a woman at his side and a whole court of beautiful, elegant, royal women. And essentially, there's a court, there's a trial of Geoffrey as the poet, who coincidentally has written all the same poems as Chaucer, uh, where he's, he's accused of doing wrong to love servants, and more specifically to women. Why? Because he's written Troilus and Crusade, in which Crusade is depicted in a negative way. Uh, she is the betrayer. She's the unfaithful woman, although... To be honest, that poem is much more complex and, and Chaucer's version of Crusade is, I think, the most sympathetic. But okay, this is the sort of, maybe the God of Love is a bad reader. And he's uh, translated uh, The Romance of the Rose, which sometimes, you know, portrays love in a bad light or is critical of lovers. And so he's, he's essentially, uh, the God of Love wants to sentence him to death. The woman at his side, who's a mysterious queen, we'll find out she's Alceste, intercedes. Classic medieval court situation. Um, it's the queen who uh, represents mercy and who argues for mercy. And her her defense of Geoffrey is, he's dumb. <laughs> he didn't know what he was doing. He's not a very good poet. He certainly didn't mean to hurt women because look at him. The guy's a fool. Geoffrey right? tries to get in there and argue for himself a little bit, but you know she, she smacks him down. And she ultimately gives him penance. She saves his life, but she gives him penance. And maybe it's worth uh, reading for a moment what the penance is. No woli sein what penance thou shalt do for thee trespass, understandet here. Thou shalt will that thou livest year by year the most a party of the team is spent in mocking of a glorious legend of good women, maideness and weavers, that weren't true in loving all her lives. And tell of false men that him betrayen, that all her life ne do not put a sayen, who many women they might do a shame, for in your world that is no hold a game. So I'll, I'll translate roughly. Now will I say what penance you will do for your trespass. Understand it here. As long as you live, you shall year by year spend the most part of your time, or the greatest part of your time, in composing a glorious legend of good women, maidens and wives who were true in loving all their lives. And tell of the false men who betrayed them, who did nothing their entire lives but try to see how many women they could do a shame to. 
for in your world that is now considered a game. So the the punishment is to write more poetry, and uh, Jeffrey will have to now write a legend. And legend means something specific in the medieval context. It's a collection of saints' lives, from legenda to be read. Right? He's he's to write a saint, uh, basically a hagiography of women who were true in love. Therefore, unlike crusade. And here's the twist: he's to write about how terrible men were to them. Uh, because men do nothing but betray women and try to trick them and, and be awful to them. And so Jeffrey does this. He begins on this penitential composition. But what he does is he doesn't tell the stories of Christian martyrs, as we might imagine, or something like that. He tells tales of classical women, a number of them from um, Ovid's Heroides, which he would call the epistles. And he tells them oddly, you know, um, he leaves important details out. Like he, there's a story, a tale of Medea in which we don't have any of the baby killing. Um, actually, Philomena also, uh, no child killing in that story. So he, he massages the narratives to make the women look better. I think in a way that was very deliberate and that would have been clear to his audience that he was doing that. And he often interrupts himself. He often says, well, you know, he's telling a story and he'll say, well, this is too long. I'm growing weary. You know, this is, uh, go read it in the source. Um, very often he says, go, you know, Naso as an Ovid tells it all. So this is why it's such a complicated work, because the whole thing is described as a punishment. Um, and then he does a deliberately poor job, as it were, telling these women's stories. And behaves as if it is a punishment by complaining about having to do it, right? So these complaints, so I'm tired and I've done enough. He he writes, I mean, that sort of performing being punished he's not he's not enjoying this yeah i mean and and there's there's more to say about that it's actually even a bit more complicated but certainly that's one of the modes that he takes on is i've been forced to do this i've been forced to tell a story which you know i think from chaucer's perspective uh, the problem with with that assignment is one that again we know today as well if you have to represent certain people in a good light without fail uh, you can't tell an interesting story Right. Interesting stories come from conflict and from complexity. But if all of the women have to be good and all of the men have to be bad, there's no narrative there. I think that's what that's one of Chaucer's points, right? The humorous way he gets us across is by having his his alter ego, Jeffrey, constantly complain, Oh like, oh, I'm exhausted with this, okay. <laughs> and it and it is unfinished as well. Although, you know, there are manuscript suggestions that there were more tales, but we don't have them. So it's a it's a messy little work. And you wrote a piece for the Chaucer Review in 2017 where you said that the dilemma at the core of the legend is how a male poet can praise women without doing violence to them. So could you talk about that a bit, how that means that he's supposed to be atoning for having done violence to women by portraying them in a bad light, and yet this way of portraying them as you know, in the, in the way he does in The Legend of Good Women is also a, a form of violence. It is. And, you know, so he gets us across in really subtle ways. Um, he often depicts his evil, rapacious male characters as being very good with language. Jason, um, Aeneas, these are men who, you know, they're, they're the baddies in the story. But he often describes them as being very good lovers, as in knowing how to behave in the proper way, knowing the right language to use on women in order to gain their pity their love, uh, their collaboration. The men are pretty helpless in the legend of good women. They often need the help of women to uh, to survive, which, I mean, it was partly 
because that's what the legends had too, right? Aeneas is sh- you know shows up on Dido's shore without much to say for him. You know, Jason really does need Medea's help uh, to gain the Golden Fleece. Jeffrey slash Chaucer underscores that and the men really what they have going for them are looks they tend to look pretty they are pretty men which is a problem for for the women who fall for them Uh, but they also are smooth talkers and there's a sense in which craft uh, the craft of seductive speech is something that's already a problem in the poem I think Chaucer wants us to be aware of the fact that praise can also be manipulative so he's writing this this flattering poem in which the bad guys are flatterers. So what does that make him? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I you know, this is all a defense of, I think, writing complex literature. Um, but what he's, what he's showing is, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, you portrayed a woman in a bad light. That means all women will suffer from it. And that's something he's aware of. It's not completely wrong. But what he's also showing is sometimes when women are portrayed in a good light, that can be a problem. And it's especially a problem um, when the thing that's good about them is how good they are at being victims. And that's also, in a sense, the, the starting logic of his assignment is to portray women as men's victims. You know, women are always true, but men always betray them and try to trick them in some way and do them wrong or, do, you know, do shame to them. And the moment you always portray women as victims, you're actually doing a violence to them as well because you're invested in their victimhood rather than in their other qualities. It's interesting that Ariadne and Phaedra as sisters get to be together, talk together, plot together in Chaucer. In the Heroides, they're kept apart. They have, they have different stories. Ariadne is abandoned on Naxos by Theseus. Phaedra, many years later, has married Theseus and fallen in love with her stepson, Hippolytus. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the funny things about the poem. Once you get past... Um, the conceit of a failed, a deliberately failed poem, right? That it's, that's bad. You notice all kinds of interesting things in it. And, th- and this is why I think there's more to it than just a deliberate failure. And he, you know, he spent some time on it. He revised the prologue. I think he, he actually cared about this poem, even, even if cri- modern critics do less so. We have actually a number of women who are quite powerful. So Dido, the introduction to Dido is of her as a queen, um, a sort of another son-like figure, much like the god of love, a powerful ruler, just, beloved by all, uh, generous, Frey, right? We have, okay, Cleopatra, maybe not so not so strong, um, but Ariadne and Phaedra, they plot, they essentially set up the... Uh, this is an entire trip down into the labyrinth. They work it all out, and then they they get him from his prison cell and explain to him what he has to do, right? But there's a sense that they're kind of military strategists. They think about how much space he would have to wield a knife or or an, any other kind of weapon, exactly how he's to deal with the, the bull, how he's to come out. They're, they're the ones thinking the whole thing through. And, and he's more of a tool in a sense. Uh, Medea as well, she also figures everything out and then explains it to Jason. So he does, I think he, what he's interested in is showing these, the side of women where they can also be figures of power, sometimes quite traditional forms of power, sometimes more subtle, as well as the victims of the terrible men because he's been forced to tell that story. And those des- those descriptions of the, the plot, I mean, there is, I mean, some of it's quite funny as well, isn't it? I mean, it's deliberately funny. It is. And, you know, first of all, you have to imagine the way 
Chaucer sets up the scene um, in The Legend of Ariadne is he has Theseus in a small prison cell, which is connected to the privy that Ariadne and her sister uh, basically use. And somehow through this, they can hear his laments from prison. So already we have a very strange situation where they're standing on the wall of the castle looking out and they're hearing this guy lament, guy's laments. But essentially you, it's been said to us at the beginning that he's, he's somehow connected next to their bathroom, right? Which is already odd. You get the sense, of, you know, on the, through the visuals uh, that there's something unusual going on. And then as Phaedra and Ariadne start to talk about Thesis, you know, there's a, they take pity on him. You know, pity is always the first step to ruin for women because they pity will lead to love and love will lead to betrayal. But they take pity on him and they start to plan how he can overcome this monster. Um, I'll read a bit from the Middle English in, in two sections. This is going to be dirty, Tommy. You're ready, right? <laughs> Let us well tast him at his hair to rot, that if so be that he a weapon have, where that he dar, his leaf to keep and serve, fichten with his feind and him defend, for in the prison there he shall descend, ye witte well that the best is in a place that nis not derg and hath throom ache and spas to weld an axe, or sword, or staff, or knief, so that make thinketh he should save his leaf, if that he be a man, he shall do so, and we shall make him balis ache also, of wax and tow, that when he gapeth fast into the best's throat, he shall him cast to slack his hunger and encumber his teeth. So let me let me do a, a quick translation of that. Let us feel him at the root of his heart, and that's the herterot has an erotic um, <laughs> double, it's a bit of a double entendre there, that if he has a weapon, whether he dares to keep his life, to save his life and protect it, to fight with this fiend and defend himself. Again, whether he has a weapon. For in the prison, he shall descend there, you know well that the beast is in a place which is not dark and hath room and also space to wield an axe or a sword or a staff or a knife, so that it seems to me he should save his life. If he be a man, he shall do so. And we shall make him balls too, of wax and tow, so that when he gapes wide into the beast's throat, he shall cast them to slake his hunger." and encumber his teeth. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> scholars have had a field day with this because almost every line is um, is a double entendre, right? And I think it gets to the point, you know, is this a man? Does he have a weapon? You know what? We'll make balls for him. <laughs> and the, the syntax is no, is no accident. And just a few lines later, they change their mind on what the labyrinth looks like. You know, they've described it as this roomy place where there's lots of, you know, space to swing an axe and so on. But he starts, they start to describe it as a house that's crinkled and has uh, quaint ways and shapen as a maze is wrought. And when you read that and know the ways that Chaucer uses the word quaint. Um, and the Canterbury Tales caught that caught her by the quaint. And, yeah. yeah. They're, you know, they have now, they're now reimagining the labyrinth um, as, uh, as the woman's body, right? So the question is, can he, 
can he navigate that? <laughs> so it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful scene. It's a, it's funny, um, and you get the sense of these of these two sisters, not just wondering if he can do this task, but wondering to what extent he is a man, <laughs> while he's sitting near a privy in prison. <laughs> and they, I mean, they don't sound like victims here at all, do they? No, not at all. No, not at all. Only the end, and I, you know, and I wonder if that's a little bit of the uh, of the play of the poem. Jeffrey gets tired of rendering their laments. That tends to be where you know Fedra has this beautiful lament as she you know sees that she's been abandoned on an island uh, by Theseus, and she goes out and and cries for him and so on. That's very nicely done in Ovid, and at the end of this tale, uh, Chaucer actually renders a bit of the Ovid of the of the corresponding passage in the Heroides, and then he says, "Go read it in the Ovid." Right. So there's a way in which you could also read his interruptions as a desire to avoid having the women in the lamenting mode. It, it's a kind of, almost a rejection of Ovid, if you like, in, in that sense. He's showing them an action, but once they're betrayed, he's not as interested in them, with some exceptions. Yeah, although, again, the, I mean, but the Ovid, I mean, there's comedy in the Ovid as well, and that the, the sort of the playing with the expectations that in the, that when Penelope in Ovid, in the first letter in the Herodes, she's she's complaining to, Ulysses that he's he's been away from home so long and all right it's great that he's won the war but what good does that do her when she's stuck at home and you know why is he loitering so long and you know maybe is he is he actually trying to get home or is he with another woman and it's it's a very she's a different character from the way she appears in Homer's Odyssey and he's doing a you know a similar sort of playing a similar game to Chaucer and playing with the expectations of, of the reader and what they think they know about Penelope in this sort of this different version of them. And of course, Ch Chaucer is then doing that same thing with, with his sources. I think that's part of how we have to understand certainly medieval tradition is that it's always a lively and playful and creative thing. That the fact that authors call on their authorities or have this obsession with authority in the sense of authorship, but also power and um, justification, it's, I think it's almost always a mistake to read it straight. There's always a critical element. There's always a playful element. There are always lies, right? And uh, and the individual author, it's maybe a bit Harold Bloomian, right? They're, it's always in how they rewrite the tradition um, and how they play against the tradition as well as how they carry it forward. It's that double, it's that double motion. Um, so it's a mistake to think of the Middle Ages as, you know, sort of, I think the, the stereotype is they... They like to be told what to do and what to think, and then they pass that on. You know, I think that's a very certainly none of our listeners will have that stereotype, but I encounter that often in you know in sort of the with my younger students. But it's very much not the case. And anything that sort of goes sounds sententious or sounds like wisdom or sounds like a lesson, you're meant to question it. You're always, as the reader, meant to put a question mark beside it and think about it yourself. Yeah, and that playfulness and self-reference and so on that you it's often talked about the you know the way that Stern in the 18th century and Tristram Shandy and came up with these new ways of sort of playing games with texts and the idea of authorship but if but that the tale of Sir Topaz in the Canterbury Tales where you know Chaucer it's Chaucer's turn to tell a story and he and it's like it, it's terrible he's you know he's interrupted by the host you know who sort of says you know your crappy rhyming's not worth shit it's, it's sort of and so this joke about who is Chaucer and who is Geoffrey and He's he's famous, but he's not himself, and who who the author is, and these games are all being played in a very sophisticated way. You know, centuries before Stern started writing. Oh yeah, 
and and very slippery and very slippery. So that sometimes Jeffrey and Chaucer fit together, and sometimes they don't. Um, and that makes it very hard to make any statement about Chaucer. So this deferral to this question of, of deferring or appearing to defer to or or refer to classical authority to Ovid and also to Virgil is in the Legend of Dido. Chaucer that's full of praise for for Virgil. That at the end he says that anyone who he mentions the letter that Dido writes to Aeneas after he's abandoned her and says, "But well, you can go and read that in Ovid, as you've said." Um, and this letter, which is also it's also a suicide note, and it's composed as he's preparing to leave Carthage and sail for Italy, and th- and it begins. So this is the Ovid again in Harold Ibsel's Penguin translation. And so at fate's call, the white swan lets himself down in the water-soaked grasses by the meander's shoreline to sing his last song. But I will not hope to move your heart with my prayer, because the god opposes me. After the loss of all that is mine, good name, chastity of both body and soul, a loss of words is not important. And that question, I mean, it clearly is very important, the loss of words and, and being this question of who gets to speak and who gets to speak for themselves and who who speaks for other people. And that seems to get to the heart of something that you're saying about about the Chaucer. And, you know, we've heard Ariadne and Phaedra speaking in, in their own voices, though, of course, it's Chaucer's imagining their conversation. And, of course, in that Dido saying she's lost her words, that it's it's Ovid who's ventriloquizing her or, or speaking through her. And this it seems to come up again and again in his poetry and in, in the, the metamorphoses as well, that when... So Daphne, the famous story of Apollo chasing Daphne, and she asks, you know, she prays to be, to be saved from him. And so she's turned into a laurel tree which in a sense saves her from him. But then again, it doesn't because her roots go into the ground and she's stopped and she can't run anymore and she can't cry out anymore. And he is still able to, you know, he sort of grabs the, the tree and kisses the tree she's been turned into and he can feel her heart still beating inside it. And it's, so what appears to be the metamorphosis that saves her actually condemns her to this sort of horrific fate. And again, she hears, so here she is one of these, a woman in the story who's portrayed as a victim of sexual violence and why is it? Well, why why is not the question? But it, it it it's quite disturbing that so many of these stories that in Ovid and Chaucer, but also in CSI on the TV, that the their stories about women being subjected to sexual violence. Does Chaucer recognise the problem with that, and how does he deal with that question? I mean, the the why is is really a big question, right? Because uh, you know, one of the interesting things to notice maybe not as important for Chaucer, but that often stories of foundational myths of nations often involve the violation of a woman, right? This is, um, Lucrece is not the only example of this. There are examples of this in um, colonial America as well, Um, that there's something politically important about a violated woman. And I think there's also something you know, ideologically imp- important about it. it. If we want to sort of read the legend as a, as a serious text, we have to think about the, what it's called, which is a, the legend of good women, which is his title. He, I mean, it's called the legend internally. It's referred to as a legend. And that's, you know, although the, all of the women that he deals with are from the classical tradition, of course, he's given it a genre name that connects it to the Christian tradition, in which, again, there are all of these stories about usually young, virginal women who are menaced by 
older, powerful men who often want them as a lover or as a concubine or maybe as a, as a, as a wife, but certainly want to violate their virginity and who gain their power by being brutally tortured in a kind of spectacular way and having all of those tortures visible to the audience, whether that's through elaborate descriptions of, you know, claws of iron tearing at the white flesh and so on, or, um, or parts of the body being cut off, you, ha- you, you name it, um, or in images, right, in church images as well, which often depicted these women in a half-nude state in a quite eroticized, masochistic way or sadistic from the point of view of the viewer. So, you know, I think Chaucer's pointing to the fact that this interest in violence being done to women is something that's also in the Christian tradition. He's not mostly referring to that explicitly, but the fact that he calls it a legend already points to that. And is saying, look, here we have these women in the classical tradition who are hurt, and but we also have this in the Christian tradition. So there's, some, there's something of an interest in that. And I think he he himself, the author rather than um, his alter ego, would have been quite critical of it. And um, the key is the tale of Lucrece, in which he shows us Tarquin watching Lucrece worry about her husband, Colatine. And there's something very interesting. I mean, you, know, you could talk about the male gaze, but at any rate, before modern cinema um, and the theory of the male gaze, we have Tarquin staring secretly at Lucrece, praying that her husband will come home safely. And here are the lines that describe her beauty in that moment. And therewithal full tenderly she wepe, and of her work she took no more cape. But makely she let her eyen fall, and thilke semblant sat her well withal, and eke her tears full of honesty, embellished her wifely chastity. And therewithal she wept full sorrowly, and she paid no more attention to her work. She's, she's holding some embroidery in her hand, or sewing. But meekly she let her eyes fall, and that appearance looked very good on her, <laughs> indeed. And also her tears, full of honesty, embellished her womanly chastity. So there's something about her sorrow is her ornament. Her sorrow makes her more beautiful. Her tears, this sense of abandon in the moment when she doesn't know that she's being observed, they're precisely what Tarquin finds so appealing. And in case we should miss it, we later get to watch Tarquin thinking about it the next day. Tarquinius, this prude king's son, conceived hath her beauty and her cheery, her yellow hair, her sharp and manere, her hue, her wardes that she hath complained, and be no craft, her beauty does not faint, and cochte to this lady switch desire that in his heart brand as any fear, so woodly that his wit was all forgotten. Tarquin, this proud king's son, observed her beauty and her face, her yellow hair, her shape, her manner, her complexion, her words, that she complained, and the fact that her beauty was not feigned by any craft, and caught such a desire for this lady burnt in his heart like any fire, so madly 
that his wit was all forgotten. So the passion, the passion that makes him rape Lucrece is caught by watching her suffer and the fact that he's watching her suffer authentically. Right? I mean, there's a whole argument there, which I think is so profound that Chaucer is giving us, that this pleasure in watching a woman's pain, which is so present both in the classical tradition and in the hagiographical tradition, the Christian tradition, actually leads to a violent desire to possess women. But at the same time, the flip side of that is Lucrece understands it. And when she goes to announce the rape and kill herself in front of her friends and family, she undoes her hair, she dishevels her hair, and she wears clothes in mourning, and she presents herself in the same way that, or in a way that recalls the way she looked when Tarquin uh, caught this desire for her. So she then uses that, in a sense, to get revenge, to assure her revenge for her rape. She understands that by looking weak, by looking like a victim, um, she can affect the political action. So there's a lot there. And, and that, that political action is to get Tarquin expelled from Rome and the last of the kings and the foundation of the Republic. And so, the, the, yeah, so it's a... So it's revolutionary in a sense, right? To revolutionary political action. And she gets called a saint. I think she's the only one whom Chaucer actually calls a saint, right? And he wants us to be thinking about, about the power of a woman killed, I think he wants us to be thinking about that. So is that in some sense that she's she isn't a victim? That she turns her her victim victimhood round and turn and you and uses it to give herself power? I mean you can't quite call her a survivor because she then does kill herself, which is She is a victim. I think she's she's someone who learns how to use her victimhood for the best ends she can manage. But she knows how to stage her own victimhood later it becomes a craft actually that's the interesting thing that the beginning he he tarquin falls in lust with the view of this woman who has no craft about her who is who doesn't know that she's being seen and who's who's expressing an, an honest emotion in a way that's that's moving not to pity in his case but she learns to turn her victimhood the presentation of her victimhood into a show it becomes rhetorical if you want and the and the reader of the poem again and then has this reaction or is is expected to have this reaction to her i mean perhaps to respond with pity rather than lust but maybe maybe some readers respond lustfully as well so the reader is is implicated in yes among the the bad men that's exactly it and you know there's this fantastic detail which Chaucer has from Ovid but you know I think it's it's so good I think he couldn't let it go where um, Lucrece as she's falling takes care to make sure that her skirt covers her her ankles you know that it doesn't ride too far up so it's after she stabbed herself <laughs> to death but even in that moment of falling she takes care to to modestly you know cover her body which of course only makes you think of the body that she's covering, right? The, the writer, the writer reveals the body that she's yes. trying to cover. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, is there or is there a way out of this for for the writer? That is a way, even in the, the, these moments that when he's you know that even as she's dying and she's trying to cover herself up, that he's exposing her. That that violence that the writer is doing to his to his characters. I mean, I don't know, is there a way in which? Chaucer tried to sort of the extent that the legend of good women is is an attempt to atone for the violence he's 
did to women in the rep his portrayal of crusade and then the legend of good women he shows that this way doesn't work as a way of of atoning for the wrong he was supposed to have done earlier that the portrayal of of say the wife of bath in the canterbury tales is that a, another way well actually maybe we could get away from this altogether and there are different ways to write about women and that you, you have a you have a piece in fact on the wife of bath in the new issue of the lrb out today in which in which you describe alison of bath it says she's the most fully formed of the canterbury pilgrims and one of the books that um you review by marion turner calls her a figure that es escapes her own text so is that is that autonomy that the wife of bath seems to have one answer to this problem of authorial violence there's something, you know, you could say Chaucer does learn things from Ovid at a at a different level than what we see in The Legend of Good Women, is that he does learn to put himself in the positions of women, um, sometimes wronged, sometimes evil, sometimes both at the same time. Evil, wicked, let's say wicked. Um, he he learns to put himself in the position of complicated women. And, you know, this is an argument that I've had maybe sometimes more inside my head than in real life with people, but there's a tendency to write off characters such as the wife of Bath because they're written by a man. And I think we have to imagine, you know, first of all, we don't know what Chaucer felt like. He certainly portrayed himself as a man, but what, what his own feeling of his own gender was like is um, is a mystery to us. But I think it, it matters that he, he was probably reading Ovid at school. I think it matters that writing speeches in the voices of women is a school exercise in his time. I mean, we don't have hard evidence that that's exactly a school exercise that he did, but he certainly seems to be good at it. And I think he's he probably encountered that kind of task. I think he did learn to imagine himself into the mind of another person. And he does that with Crusade, by the way. You know, he... Um, Troilus and Crusade is very closely based on a book by Boccaccio, Il Filostrato. But... Chaucer gives us much more of a sense of Crusade's mental process. It's really novelistic. I mean, it could be Henry James, right? He really just gives us very fine-grained, precise descriptions of her thought, of the workings of her thought, and her emotional life, to the extent that by the time that she leaves or she betrays Troilus, you kind of understand why, you know, even if she sort of bad for doing for doing so he's created a logic in which it's understandable why she would do so it's because she she lives with fear her entire life and what is the what is the source of that fear well uh, you know she's living during a war she's besieged both she and troilus um are living in in a city that is besieged um uh, and also her father is a prophet and knows that troy will fall so she has a reason she's been She's a widow, her father has abandoned her, and she has reason to believe that they're all going to be conquered. And she's a very anxious person. She's constantly, you know, some stanzas in that poem describe her being afraid about three times in three different ways. So by the time you get to her seeking some kind of security on the Greek in the Greek camp, after she's been traded over to the enemy, you understand why, because she's someone who needs security more than she needs love. Chaucer did that with, with Crusade, and, you know, if you read that book superficially, what you get is Crusade is a woman who betrayed her man, right? <laughs> if you're a bad reader. 
he he deals with it in a different way when he um, when he writes Allison of Bath, in that he creates a, a character who poses the question, who who literally says, "What would happen if?" women wrote the stories, right? Men have written all of the stories we have about bad women. These are all from men's point of view. What happens if you um, write women's stories? She's also caught in a double bind because in a, in a sense, she's a figure who can't really escape men's stereotypes, men's negative stereotypes about women, right? So she's also a very tricky figure. It's hard to, you know, you can't sort of, you know, have her be a nice little proponent of an alternative theory and leave it at that. But I think also in her inconsistency and and her complexity and her slipperiness, she resembles a real person. And uh, Marion Turner in her book talks about the the confessional tradition um, that starts to become powerful in uh, late medieval poetry. That there's an interest in in voices talking about the their own inner lives. And of course, those are not going to be coherent and logical and uh, and tidy. That's precisely when they're messy is when they feel alive and real. And I think you know Chaucer maybe fusing that confessional tradition with with Ovidianism manages to create a few characters who live for a very long time. Crusade also has a very long tradition, um, and I don't think it's because of Troilus. I think it's because of Crusade. You know, Shakespeare obviously is interested in both Crusade and the Wife of Bath, and they continue on. Crusade usually in her own story, but the Wife of Bath gets put into other stories as well because there's something there's something that feels true about inconsistency, and I, and I guess also this combination of perceptive social criticism combined with an acknowledgement of one's own faults and imperfections. Irina Dumitrescu, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. If you subscribe to Close Readings, in upcoming episodes, you'll be able to hear Emily Wilson talking to me more about Ovid's Metamorphoses and Irina talking to Mary Wellesley about Troilus and Crusade, among many other subjects. There'll be three new series starting in January, and we'll have more details of those later in the year. To subscribe, click on one of the links in this podcast's description. There are two links, one for Apple listeners and one for other apps. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.